0: Section 7 of the Shakespeare Apocrypha This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shakespeare Apocrypha by C. F. Tucker Brooke. Section 7. 13. The Birth of Merlin survives in the late 17th century Quattro with the following title, The Birth of Merlin, or The Child Hath His Father, as it hath been several times acted with great applause, written by William Shakespeare and William Rowley, Placir Cupio, London, printed by Theo Johnson for Francis Kirkman and Henry Marsh, And are to be sold at the prince's arms in Chancery Lane sixteen sixty two. There seems to have been no good second edition till the publication of Tyrrell's Doubtful Plays of Shakespeare in eighteen fifty one. The spelling of Q, as might be expected, is of the usual restoration character, and the meter has been corrupted in many cases irretrievably by the printing of the entire play in long prose lines, apparently to save space. From the language and grammar, however, as well from the general tone, it is clear that the birth of Merlin was not composed later than the reign of James I, nor is it at all likely that it antedates James's accession. Mr. Flea assigns it, in its present form, to the year 1622. There is no external evidence of Shakespeare's partial authorship, except that of the publisher Kirkman, Repeated in his catalogues of 1661 and 1671, where we read, Shakespeare and Rowley, Birth of Merlin, Tragedy, Comedy. This attribution, made so long after Shakespeare's death, and by a particularly untrustworthy authority, has met with scant respect in modern times, save from the early German critics, Tieck and Hone. There is not a single poetic passage in The Birth of Merlin which will justify, for an instant, the hypothesis of Shakespeare's authorship. The disjointed nature of the plot, moreover, the foolish and immature morality of the modestia scenes, and the repeated appeals to the cheap makeshifts of sorcery and divination, stamp it as distinctively un-Shakespearean. Yet, the reader of this play will perceive, as no modern reader of Cromwell or the London Prodigal easily can, what was in the minds of those critics who have defended its genuineness. One meets with occasional bits of poetry and characterization which have certainly a remote kinship to Shakespeare and were probably written under his influence. In passages like the speeches of Prince Uther in Act 2, Scene 3, we recognize dimly and afar off the syntactic rush, the ease of verse flow, the figurative power, and sincerity of emotion which we know in Shakespeare. The strength and naturalness of the lines given to Edal in Act 2, Scene 2 show that the author could portray deep passion in lucid simple verse. But In other places, we find what seems to be intentional and rather disastrous imitation of Shakespeare's broken syntax and bold use of words. In these cases, we acknowledge ourselves in the presence of a poet of rather more than respectable endowments, yet we must often feel that the actual value of the thought is hardly sufficient recompense for untwisting the convolutions of a sentence such as this. Quote, or, like to Maria's soldiers, who o'ertook the eyesight killing gorgon at one look, made everlasting stand, so feared my power, whose cloud aspired the sun, dissolved a shower. Unquote. No commentator has seen particular reason to deny William Raleigh's concern in The Birth of Merlin, since this Rowley was too obscure a dramatist to be credited with a play without at least hearsay evidence in his favor. Hopkinson assigns the entire performance to Rowley, while Flier, on the other hand, believes his part to consist solely or mainly in the revision of another man's work. Mr. P. A. Daniel. 1884, suggested Middleton as the author of the play, and Mr. Fliet at one time accepted this attribution with conviction, at least as regards the serious parts. Till the matter has been much more thoroughly investigated, however, the connection of Middleton with the birth of Merlin must remain quite problematical. It is perhaps an indication in his favor that the detailed legal allusions prove the author to have been one well-versed in law, and the fact of his frequent collaboration with William Raleigh adds a little more to the weight of confirmatory evidence. 14. Until 1844, the fine play of Sir Thomas More existed only in a confused, mutilated, and generally unknown manuscript belonging to the British Museum. In that year, it was described by Dice with admirable fidelity and printed for the Shakespeare Society. Only one other edition with modernized spelling was published in 1902 by A. F. Hopkinson for Private Circulation. As Mr. Hopkinson did not consult the MS, his variations from Dice have no claim to consideration except as pure conjecture. The text of Dice contains a few unintentional deviations from the MS, such as the difficult and varied handwriting of the latter rendered practically unavoidable. These trifling inaccuracies, so far as careful collation has revealed them, have been set right in the present edition. For certain parts of the play, however, Dice's version must remain the ultimate authority, since a number of words and lines intelligible to him have, by the subsequent deterioration of the MS, become quite indecipherable or have entirely crumbled away. The manuscript consists of twenty sheets, written in five different hands. The paper is not of the same kind throughout, and some of the scenes are obviously misplaced. In several cases we get two drafts of the same scene, while small portions of other scenes have been entirely lost. Altogether the confusion is extreme, yet dice has succeeded in effecting what appears to be certainly the proper arrangement and the lunakai are nowhere so great as to obscure the plot. Leaves 3 through 5, 10, 11, 14, 15, Seventeen through twenty-two of the M.S., comprising about two-thirds of the whole, are undoubtedly older than the rest. These thirteen leaves, written closely on both sides of the paper, with a certain amount of neatness and only the usual copyist's errors, belong without doubt to the draft of the play which was submitted to Sir Edmund Tilney, the master of the Revels, for license to act. On the margins of these pages, we meet from time to time with Tilney's comments, called forth by what he regarded as the seditious nature of various passages. Thus, at the top of the very first page, he has written, Quote, Lee out ye insurrection holy, and cause thereof, and begin with Sir Theo Moore at ye mayor's sessions, with a report afterwards of his good Siris Dunn, being sure off London upon a mutiny against ye Lombards, only by short report, and not otherwise at your own perils. E. Tilney. The insurrection scene, however, and the other parts to which the master of the revels took exception were not left out, but merely recast. There appears indeed to have been no difference of plot between the original version of Sir Thomas More, as submitted to Tilney, and the elaborated form in which the MS preserves it. The new scenes or revisions of the old ones, indescribably finer in several instances as poetry and drama, but adding no fresh element to the general design. In one or two cases, a page of the original matter has been almost totally hidden by having a new passage pasted bodily over it. The 13 legible leads of the original draft give us the following scenes. Act 1, Scene 1, 2, 3, 2.1, 4, 3.1, 4.1, 2, 3, 4, 5, except new draft of 2, 68 through 104, 5.1, 2, 3, 4. Scraps of other important scenes, such as Act 2, Scene 2, and Scene 3, Point 2, are also occasionally discernible, but the old versions of these parts of the play have generally been deleted or pasted over to prevent confusion with the new improved readings. The original draft of the play, as submitted to Tilney, is in a single hand and runs on almost without blot or correction. It is a clean copy, made perhaps not by the author himself but by a professional scribe. The latter insertions, however, leaves six through nine, twelve, thirteen, sixteen, are for the most part preserved exactly as they were composed. They are full of deletions and alterations, and are written on paper of varying sorts and sizes, in certainly three, probably four, different hands, none of which resembles that of the original 13 sheets. If, then, we call the handwriting of the first draft hand A, we may thus indicate the various sorts which appear on the seven new leaves. Hand B found only on leaf 6, which contains a revision of the scene between Moore and his wife, 4.5, 68-104. This passage of 70 lines was never properly fitted into the play, so that the old version in Hand A has been left standing in its proper place, while the improved, lengthened version in Hand B was negligently inserted between Act 2.1 and Act 2.2. Hand C. Occurring on the first page of leaf 7, 2.2, and on leaf 16, 4.1, 309, SD, enter a serving man, to the end of scene. Hand D. This is the handwriting which Mr. Simpson and Mr. Spedding have united in assigning to Shakespeare upon evidence of a most interesting character. The only difficulty connected with the discrimination between the various handwritings of the MS concerns itself with this hand D. Mr. Simpson believed that all the passages in the play which are not in the easily recognizable A, B, and C hands are written in hand D and by Shakespeare. This would make the latter the author or reviser of the following scenes: 2.3, 4, 1 through 172, 3.2 and three. Mr. Spedding, on the contrary, recognizes a fifth hand, to which he assigns two-three, three-two, one through two hundred and eighty-two, three-three, and perhaps the remaining part of three-two. Thus, Spedding leaves to Shakespeare only the magnificent insurrection scene to the end of line 172, And a very doubtful title to the end of 3.2 from line 283. The best judgment on this difficult question seems that kindly given me by Mr. Herbert of the British Museum, who considers all the scenes ascribed by Simpson to Shakespeare to be in one handwriting, with the exception of 283 to the end. In agreement with this opinion, we divide as follows. Hand D. 2.3. Four one through one seventy two three point two one through two eighty two three hand E three point two two eighty three to the end. The manuscript of Sir Thomas More contains no direct statement in regard to the play's origin. The questions of authorship, date, and stage production are all left dark except for such doubtful light as a few casual allusions in the body of the text may shed. That the drama belongs to the end of the 16th century and probably not to the extreme end is indicated by several consideration. In Act 4, Scene 1, there occur two anachronistic references to Ogle, a theatrical wig maker mentioned in Cunningham's Revels Accounts for 1573, and again under date of 1584. As one of the players is represented as leaving Moore's house to get from Ogle a false beard, with which he later appears, the realistic effect of the illusion would have been lost had not Ogle's shop been in actual existence when the drama was produced. Dice suggested 1590, or just before as the date of the play, and Simpson, who regarded the insurrection scenes as inspired by a similar outbreak in 1586, decided positively for that year or the next. Mr. Fliet, on the other hand, supported by Hopkinson, pronounced 1595 through 6, the earliest probable date, and refers to a rising in June 1595, which might well have given a to the insurrection scenes and rendered them particularly distasteful to the master of the rebels. The two dates proposed by Simpson and Fliet, respectively, may safely be accepted as determining the period within which Sir Thomas More was written the editions were most likely composed soon after the body of the play. This is almost certainly true of Moore's magnificent speech in Defense of Order and Humanity in 2.4, intended obviously as a balance to the revolutionary scenes which so displeased Tilney. Without such make-weight on side of the law, no theatre manager, however bold, could well have ventured to perform the first part of the play in the face of the tremendous prohibition. Quote, Lee out ye insurrection only, and the cause thereof, at your own perils. The most probable explanation of the number of hands concerned in the work and the extraordinary disorder of the MS seems to be that the manager anxious to act the play with the least possible loss of time but afraid to run directly counter to authority, turned the original draft over to several writers, each of whom hastily revised what seemed to him most glaringly in need of alteration. There is reason for believing that Sir Thomas More was acted by the Lord Chamberlain's servants. Before the speech of the messenger in 3.3, the MS writes, Monsieur T. Godall which of course means that the messenger's part was to be taken by T. Godall Thomas Goodall who is here indicated is known to have been in 1592 a subordinate member of the Lord Strange's company later called Lord Chamberlain's Such discussion as this play has received hitherto has concerned itself chiefly with the interesting possibility that the scenes in handy, or some part of them, may be directly from the pen and brain of Shakespeare. The theory of Shakespearean part authorship was evolved by Richard Simpson in 1871 and supported in the following year by James Spedding, with the differences as to detail already specified. Mr. Hopkinson has accepted their general conclusions, and Professor Ward, declaring his inability to judge concerning the genuineness of the so-called Shakespearean handwriting, goes on to say... Quote, As to the style and manner of the passages in question, not only may the speeches of Moore, in particular that addressed to the insurgents, which may have been specially elaborated to suit the requirements of the licenser, be said, without hesitation, to have the true Shakespearean manner, besides being genuinely Shakespearean in feeling, but it is with difficulty that they can be conceived to have been written by any other contemporary author. Unquote. "Dr. Furnival, on the other hand, doubts that the text of the insurrection scene and C in the MS is in Shakespeare's writing and says of this portion of the play that there is quote, "nothing necessarily in Shakespearean in it, though part of it is worthy of him." Unquote. Mr. Fleay appears likewise to be incredulous the difficult question raised by these dissimilar opinions would be much easier of solution if we could, with Spedding, dismiss all but the supreme passage in the play, the culminating insurrection scene and the speech of Moore, as written in a different hand, and therefore not belonging to the Shakespearean matter. This, it must be said in candor, we are perhaps hardly justified in doing. All the scenes enumerated on page 49 as belonging to Handy, including the relatively weak Randall Erasmus Moore passages in 3.2, and the even more commonplace 2.3, may very probably be in the same handwriting. Moreover, it is practically certain from the appearance of the MS of the insurrection scene, as will be indicated later, that the handwriting is that of the author. If, therefore, we decide that 2.4, 1 through 172, is written and composed by Shakespeare, then we should be prepared to accept 2.3, 3.2, 1 through 282, 3.3 as at least transcribed in Shakespeare's hand. The first seventy two lines of the insurrection scene appear to me more thoroughly in tone of Shakespeare than any other passage in the doubtful plays. There is possibly more striking poetry in Edward the third and the two noble kinsmen, and greater intensity of feeling in parts of Arden of Feversham, but it would be difficult or impossible to find outside the plays of the ordinary canon any extract of similar length which reminds the reader so strongly and lastingly of the special peculiarities of Shakespeare's genius. We get something of the familiar ring in the very first sentence. Lincoln's appeal to the unruly mob he has gathered about him. Quote, Lincoln, peace. Hear me, he that will not see a red herring at a hairy groat, butter at alvin pence a pound, meal at nine shillings a bushel, and beef at fower nobles a stone list to me, George Bet Yet will come to that pass, if strangers be suffered, mark him. This, and the speeches that follow inevitably, suggest Jack Cade and his company in 2 Henry VI. The perception of the individual Shakespearean touch grows stronger in the mob's clamorous debate as to whether Shrewsbury, Surrey, or Moore is to address them. A debate decided finally for Moore with the true mob logic of Shakespeare. Quote, dull. Let's hear him a keeps a plentiful shrevel tree, and a maid my brother, Arthur Watkins, seriant safe's yeoman. Let's hear Shreve More. All Shreve More, 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 Shreve More. The speech of More, which follows, is praised on all hands both for its splendid poetry and for its likeness to Shakespeare, but it, As well as the earlier part of the scene must be read in its entirety to be appreciated. The numerous parallels of word and phrase with the acknowledged works will not escape the notice of any reader. Equally apparent and generally recognized is the similarity to Shakespeare's early style in all matters of technique—the bold, figurative use of words. The rich smoothness of verse and the total absence of strain or affectation at the height of poetic intensity mark these lines as not less Shakespearean in metrical quality than any part of the two noble kinsmen or Edward III. The top scene of Sir Thomas More, however, exhibits the surest indication of Shakespearean authorship, just where the claim of all other doubtful plays breaks down. That is, when we judge it dramatically rather than poetically, giving less regard to the manner and more to the matter. The 172 lines in question say precisely what we should expect Shakespeare, the man, the dramatist to say. We have here the same attitude toward the mob, half good-natured laughter, half scorn and distrust, and the same eloquent championship of law and order against anarchic tendencies, which appear so consistently throughout the genuine works. Moreover, the insurrection scene satisfies fully the almost decisive test of utility. Whereas the so-called Shakespearean portion of Edward III splits the play into two irreconcilable halves, and the analogous scenes in The Two Noble Kinsmen seldom touch at all the dramatic crises, which are regularly left to the pen of Fletcher, the author of the insurrection scene in Sir Thomas More, has turned his attention to the crucial point in the drama and has revised it in just the way which best answers the requirement, both of stage effect and of managerial prudence. It is not too much to say of this scene by way of summary that it is exactly the sort of scene we should expect Shakespeare to write, had he been called upon to revise the play, full of his well-known sentiments and expressed in a style which is remarkably like his own during the period 1590 through five. If these lines are really by Shakespeare, we have a most interesting illustration of the method of composition during his early maturity. The frequent interlineations and substitutions of one phrase for another show how the work took form as it proceeded, and make it evident that the sheet of paper on which this scene is written in the Harleian MS contains the author's first draft set down line by line as the passage evolved itself in his brain. In the final version, 2.132 FF, read as follows, quote, Wash your foul minds with tears, and those same hands that you like rebels lift against the peace, lift up for peace, and your venerant knees make them your feet to kneel to be forgiven. Tell me but this: What rebel captain, as mutinies are incident by his name, can still the rout?' n c These fine lines were not arrived at without difficulty. In their first form there was a pause after feet in 135 which after the poet wrote quote to kneel to be forgiven is safer wars than er you can make whose discipline is right why in your wars cannot proceed but by obedience what rebel captain unquote and see. this failed to satisfy him and caused him an obvious struggle before it could be remodeled to his taste First, he deleted wars at the end of the third line and wrote instead Hurley, apparently because of the presence of wars in the preceding line. Then, as a substitute for why Hurley, he has written above, Quote, in Into Your Obedience, unquote, which in turn is lined out with all the rest to be replaced by the single half line, Quote, Tell Me But This, unquote. At the same time, apparently, the pause in 135 was shifted from the middle to the end of the line. Of the other scenes, possibly written in handy, only the soliloquy of Moore, 3.2.1 through 21, and the comic Faulkner passages seem at all worthy of Shakespeare. They, however, may doubtless be attributed to him, without excessive temerity, as careless revisionary work. Fundamentally similar in style and tone to his genuine performances, but naturally more hasty and somewhat less spirited, 2.3, the Erasmus part of 3.2 and the whole of 3.3, must be allowed to be decidedly un But of the last two of these passages, it is quite certain... And it is extremely probable of the first that the person who transcribed them in handy was not in any real sense of their author. The two Erasmus bits of 3.2, 22 through 47 and 142 through 240, and the two Faulkner bits, 48 through 141 and 241 to the end, alternate with each other and are not easily separated. From the scraps of the old version of the scene in hand A, which are still legible, it appears that the Erasmus part was largely copied with only casual embellishments by the revisor, while the Faulkner part is remodeled and immensely improved. Thus, the Erasmus passages are basically the work of the original author of the play, and have been rewritten in hand D, with merely incidental improvements, because they are wedged into the same scene with the Faulkner episode to which the gave. serious attention. The brief and tame scene three of the third act is copied in hand D verbatim except for the insertion of the single word Heather from the original draft written in hand C just after 4.1. It is clear that scribe C having added to 4.1 the final lines, 310 through 68, used the remaining half sheet of paper for the sketch of a much needed connecting scene between the third act and the fourth. The deletions prove the priority of this copy of the scene to that in hand D. Line 5, for instance, was first written, quote, As sent to tell your lordship of his coming, unquote. then the first two words were deleted and the last three replaced by, quote, that they are at hand, unquote, which later was also scratched out in favor of the final reading quote, of the near approach. Unquote. Scribe D has merely copied the scene in its final form, inserting quote, Heather in line three for the sake of the meter, and has pasted his copy where the scene obviously belongs at the end of Act three. What is certainly true of the Erasmus parts in 3.2 and of 3.3 is in the highest degree, likely of 2.3, the only other mediocre scene in hand D. Here, too, the scribe seems to have been not the author, but merely the theatrical arranger, though from the incomplete state of the MS, it is not possible in this case to compare the revised version with the original. Setting these scenes aside, then, we are left with the first 172 lines of 2.4 and the three passages from 3.2, 1 through 21, 48 through 141, 241 through 282, all of which are written in hand D, question mark, and are in large measure composed by the writer. Though these 300 lines we meet the same general characteristics though they display themselves in greater freedom and grandeur in the completely new cast insurrection scene than in the merely revised and elaborated passages of 3.2. When we consider this part of Sir Thomas More in its poetic and particularly in its dramatic and personal aspects, taking into account the play's probable date and the probable company by which it was acted, it is hardly possible to withstand the conviction that if Shakespeare was ever concerned with any of the apocryphal plays, then surely it was with this. Of the body of the play, little need be said, though Sir Thomas More ranks high among the productions of its decade. Lack of unity is a defect inherent in the style of a composition, but the absence of anything like a consecutive plot is to some extent atoned for by the effectiveness of Moore's genial character. The really attractive personality of the central figure and the genuine spirit of light-heartedness which inspires even the tragic scenes are two merits covering a multitude of imperfections and raising Sir Thomas Moore far above the flatness of Old Castle and Cromwell. In no work of the period do we get a more vivid portrayal of the management of an aristocratic household. The dinner to the Lord Mayor, the picture of Moore in the midst of his family circle, and the glimpse behind the scenes of a Tudor morality are charming bits of domesticity which it would not be easy to parallel in the range of Elizabethan dramatic literature. The main source of the drama is Doubtless Hall's Chronicle, from which Dice quotes illustrative excerpts. However, the story of Moore's life and death was such common property in the reign of Elizabeth that it is unsafe, perhaps, to fix upon any one authority. I have found an account of the fight in Pannier Alley and of the episode of the Long-Haired Faulkner 3.2 in Fox's Book of Martyrs, edited 1684 to 431, where both incidents are related in connection with Thomas Cromwell. The stock account of Moore's execution, very much as it appears in the play, will be found in the same work, 2, 294. The authorship of Sir Thomas Moore, in its first form, has been assigned to Lodge, whose doubtful claim is favored by Flea and Hopkinson. A few words remain to be said regarding the editorial history of the Shakespeare Apocrypha. Of the fourteen plays here printed, all but the recently discovered Sir Thomas More have suffered at the hands of late sixteenth- and seventeenth-century editors. During the period which began with Kirkman, and culminated with Malone, Capel, and Stevens, critical energies were engaged here as elsewhere in the well-meant but mischievous task of leveling out grammatical archaisms and normalizing the frequently rough or irregular flow of the lines. Under this regime, which shows itself almost at its worst, and the emendations of the modern German critics Dilius, Moltke, and Ilza, the present plurals in S, for example, and such expressions as thou was, disappeared, while the hugey monsters of Le Guin reappeared as the hugest monsters. At this time, the frequent nine-syllable lines of the originals and the lines in which words like grace, Fear, Lord, were pronounced in two syllables, were made arithmetically orthodox by the insertion of some colorless monosyllable. Thus in Cromwell, instead of the correct old reading, quote, Well, hath uh, your Grace said, my lord of Norfolk, therefore let us presently to Lambeth, unquote. We find in Malone's and every succeeding text, quote, well hath your grace said my good lord of norfolk therefore let us go presently to lambeth in the last two acts of this one play 34 words have been thus unwarrantly inserted and a number of omissions is almost as great Only within the last few decades has any attempt been made to purge the text of the apocryphal plays of the impurities which all had accumulated during the long period of careless or ill-advised editing. Even since the beginning of the 19th century, edition after edition has reprinted the insipid texts of the later Quartos and Malone, or has differed only in the incorporation of yet other unnecessary emendations." For 200 years, there has not appeared a reliable version of Locrine, Musidorus, Sir John Oldcastle, Thomas Lord Cromwell, The London Prodigal, The Puritan, or A Yorkshire Tragedy. And that too, notwithstanding the fact that all these plays, except Musidorus, are included in the third and fourth Shakespeare folios, and that all of them, in their garbled form, have been many times reprinted. The other seven plays have in recent times been edited from the original quarto texts with varying accuracy. Undoubtedly, the most valuable of these editions are the standard text for the two noble kinsmen and Sir Thomas More by Little Dale and Dice, respectively. Arden of Feversham has been carefully edited by Mr. Bullen and independently by the indefatigable German scholars Warnke and Prorschult. To whom we owe also editions of Edward Third, The Merry Devil of Edmonton, The Birth of Merlin, Fair M, and Muserdurus. The value of the text by Warnke and Procholt differs considerably. The earliest, that of Muserdurus, cannot be accepted as critical edition at all, though well provided with apparatus criticus and laboriously prepared. Of the many Quartos, only the eighth has been consulted at first hand, and the editors have made the fatal mistake of adopting as the readings of the first and third quartos respectively. What are in reality the silent emendations of Hazlitt and Collier? Fair M. The second of the plays, edited by Wang and Procholt, is better done. The spelling is not modernized, as in their text of Muséderus, and the two old quartos have really been collated. Yet numberless small corrections are required to render this edition at all authoritative. In some way, which it would be difficult to explain, the orthography and variant readings of the two quartos have been so mixed that the resultant text gives no faithful representation of either. The editors appear to have profited by experience, for they have had much more success with the other four plays published by them, namely The Merry Devil of Edmonton, Edward III, The Birth of Merlin, and Arden of Feversham. In these editions, the text of the earliest quarto is, in each case, pretty faithfully preserved, while the list of variant readings is full and, on the whole, exact. As might be expected, in transcribing from the originals, a good many unintentional deviations in spelling have been made, and occasional errors in more important matters require correction. It is to be regretted that conjectural emendations by Professor Elze and other modern critics have so frequently been admitted into the text without absolute necessity. On the whole, however, these editions deserve the favorable opinions they have received on many hands. Preface to the Second Impression in the present impression, about 75 misprints or textual errors are corrected and about 15 positive blemishes in the introduction and the notes have been removed. Early versions of all the plays included have now appeared in the series of Tudor facsimile texts, and the Malone Society has produced editions of Locrine Oldcastle, and Sir Thomas More. In particular, Dr. Gregg's very careful work on the More manuscript, furthered by the stripping of the previously covered leaves, has been rewarded by the establishment of essentially better readings. The most important addenda to the bibliography are the following F. W. Moorman, quote, Plays of Uncertain Authorship Attributed to Shakespeare, unquote, Cambridge History of England Literature, Volume 5, 1910, pages 236 through 58. O. Peterson, pseudo-Sakespirach-Drammen, Anglia, 1913, 424 through 62. H. Dugdale Sykes, quote, The Authorship of a Yorkshire Tragedy, unquote, Journal of England and German Philosophy, July 1917. Professor J. M. Manley's edition of The Merry Devil of Edmonton in Representative English Comedies, Volume 2, 1913, containing a new suggestion of the play's source. George W. Mannell, quote, The Source of Immediate Plot of Fair M, unquote. Modern Language Notes, March 1913. H. Dugdale Sykes, quote, The Authorship of Two Noble Kinsmen, Modern Language Review, April 1916, unquote. L. L. schuching quote, Das Datum des pas Sir Thomas More, English Studies, 46, 1912-13, 228-51. W. W. Gregg, Quote, Autograph Plays by A. Munday, unquote, Ascribing One of the Hands of the Moore M.S. to Munday, Modern Language Review, January 1913. Sir Edwin Mond Thompson, quote, Shakespeare's Handwriting, Identifying One of the Hands as Shakespeare's, unquote, Oxford, 1916. Percy Simpson, quote, The Play of Sir Thomas More and Shakespeare's Hand in It, unquote, The Library, January 1917. Yale University, December 1917. End of Section 7. Read by Trish Rutter. San Diego, August 1st, 2021. End of the Shakespeare Apocrypha by C. F. Tucker Brook.